invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 14. Um, I said this to the Wednesday night guys. Um, I actually sent out an email to them because midweek stopped uh, before Thanksgiving, but I wanted them to know we still had the Bible study going on for the next two weeks. And I let them know, and I'm, I'm glad you're here uh, this week, and I want to I encourage you to be here next week as well, because in, in Genesis 14 and in Genesis 15, we have two very key things that help unlock our Bibles for us. Um, and as we're going to see here uh, this morning in Genesis 14, uh, specifically a person, and understanding that person helps us unlock other parts of our Bible. But let me just tell you, Genesis 15 is one of the key chapters in all of the Bibles. So Genesis 3 is, a, you know, obviously all of it is God's word. All of it's living and active as Price prayed, uh, quoting from Hebrews. But there are certain places that are just so significant, we just have to know them. Genesis 3 was one of them. Genesis 15 is one of them. So you're not going to want to miss uh, next week. But Genesis 14 is where we're looking at this morning. I entitled our time together, The Battle of Faith, because there is in this text there is a, a physical battle that takes place. There's actually this little mini war that takes place that Abram engages in. Uh, there's also a spiritual battle that takes place in the context of the promise that God has given to Abram beginning in, in Genesis 12, verse 2, and then again what you're going to see next week, which is just absolutely astounding. And I put as a first point on there, I'm going to go through this before I read the scripture. I put as the first point on your notes, usually I put scriptural introduction. But instead this morning I put wrestling with scripture. And I want to talk about that for a second. I want to talk about that because it's been impressed upon me in my own personal study this past week of this chapter that sometimes there's just a wrestling. And I say impressed upon me because I really had to wrestle with this. I mean, if you, if you read ahead and you started reading uh, chapter 14 this week, um, you probably didn't get three verses in before you thought, you know, not only do I not think this may apply to me, I don't even know how to pronounce any of the stuff I just read. And then if you were, if you were strong enough to keep going, then you're, you're, you know, you're in verse 8, 9, and 10, and you're like, wow, I'm still in that exact same spot where I'm looking and reading names, and I'm trying to figure out who goes with what and what goes here, and sometimes looking at this going, well, okay, I know this is God's word. I know we're, we're, we're supposed to sit under it, but where does, how does this fit for me? So let's start this morning just talking about wrestling uh, with Scripture. And I think that wrestling involves four things for us. I think, first of all, it involves a wrestling with my need of Scripture. A wrestling with my need of Scripture. So there's sometimes when you, when you, you come to Amen or you're, you're sitting down for your personal devotion or uh, you're sitting under a sermon on Sunday morning or Sunday night and, and the text is read and, and don't you get that moment where you instantly feel like, wow, this is going to be good for me. I mean, whatever's read, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to know more about this. And then sometimes you come to places like Genesis 14, and you're like, ugh, I don't know what this has for me. I don't know what this, what this means for me. Yet, we know that all Scripture is helpful for reproof. All Scripture is helpful for encouragement. So we know by faith, by the Holy Spirit that testifies in our hearts that this is the Word of God, we know in our heads that we need, for instance, this morning, Genesis 14. But, our, but, our, but as we read it, as we look at it, our instincts are not hit with, I need Genesis 14. And brothers, that's the wrestling right there. 
the wrestling between knowing in our head that all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of it is necessary for my sanctification, and then actually experiencing it and thinking as we look at this, is this, do I need this? That's a wrestling. This morning we're going to wrestle with that. The second way I think we wrestle with Scripture is wrestling with my belief in Scripture. Wrestling with my belief in Scripture. In some places that comes to us, I think, quickly, belief. We, 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 we get it. We grasp it. We're like, you know, I can, I, can, I can believe that. But then sometimes when you're studying places like Genesis or uh, Sunday mornings, we're studying through the book of Exodus and you're reading about some of these plagues and some of these miracles and you're reading about places, history uh, of antiquity and you're looking at some of these things and it's not that you want to disbelieve God's word. It just seems... Not so much that the miracles struggle, but is this worded right? Did they just kind of fudge corners on this? Like, for instance, in the text that we have here uh, this morning in verse 14, talks about these, uh, you know, it's already talked about a war between five kings and four kings. And then Abram goes after them with 318 men and overtakes them. And you're like, okay, really? How did that exactly happen, you know? Or if you were to study deeper in this, if you were to do your own study, uh, like I did uh, the past couple of weeks, and you were to look at these kings and these cities, and then you were to look at the archaeological record, um, you have some people that would say, hey, listen, I don't know if we can actually believe maybe some of these things were made up because we can't find, we can't find uh, any evidence in the archaeological record or, or any evidence in any other writings that these existed. And sometimes we feel like, well, maybe we can't believe it. Well, I want to point out, we know this is God's word. We know it's truth. We hear that kind of thing maybe from some liberal scholars, and there, there comes for us a wrestling. I do want to point out, as E.J. Young, a great professor of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia said a long time ago, you realize that any, any critic, whether it's you or me uh, or somebody who's a liberal scholar, any critic arguing from silence against Scripture, what they're doing is saying, yeah, I see what's read here, but I'm going to actually propose a hypothesis that's based on nothing. That's based on just my critique of what's there. And so that's important to recognize that's what's really happening. That, that a lack of evidence of outside of Scripture, this person who's critiquing it is basically saying, yeah, I'm going to form my own hypothesis because I just don't like what it says there. Here's evidence. I'm going to ignore this evidence, and I'm going to say there has to be some other evidence to exist. And so sometimes there's a struggle, a wrestling with a belief. I think the third way that we wrestle with Scripture is wrestling with my understanding of Scripture. So maybe I know I need it. Maybe I know, maybe I believe it. it's true. But as I read someplace like Genesis 14, I wrestle with really understanding it. We're going to get to uh, this character uh, in verse 17, Melchizedek. And, and for those of you that have, have grown up in the church and, and you've read your Bibles a lot, you're like, oh, yeah, I know, I know that's a key figure. Others of you, maybe uh, would, you, you don't know where, but you, your head goes, yeah, I, I know, I've heard that, I know that's somehow important. And you're right. Melchizedek appears in a lot of other places in Scripture. And clearly, We've got to understand this guy, but as we, as we read this, as we look at this, we're going to go, wow, this guy just appears on the scene. He appears without a mother and father, no mention of his, of his genealogy, which is extremely unusual in Genesis, 
as we've experienced. And then he disappears. And then all of a sudden, we don't pick him up again until Psalm 110, when David's writing about it. And then all of a sudden, in, 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 the, in the epistle, or excuse me, in Hebrews, it, he explodes on the scene. And he's so key, apparently, to all of these things. But when you read the text, when you look here, you're like, wow, I don't, I don't immediately understand his importance. And so there's a wrestling that has to take place. We actually have to work at it. We have to, we have to dig deep. It's one of the things I so admire, and I've told you this so many times. Amen Bible study existed long before I got here uh, to Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And what has impressed me the most is a group of men who are committed to do the work of understanding. To, to sit with your Bibles open, verse by verse, and let's really wrestle with understanding. And finally, and Price, uh, I'm, I'm thankful he prayed this for us. Finally, the fourth wrestling is a wrestling with our submission to Scripture. A wrestling with our submission to Scripture. So maybe I know I need it, and maybe I, I believe it, and maybe I'm going to wrestle, do the, the mental wrestling here this morning to really understand it. But the danger for us always is that we would, we would think that the job is finished when we've sat here and really understood Genesis 14. When what Price prayed, quoting James, is we want to not just be those who know God's word, but then we want to meditate on it in prayer and thought and, and think about who, what this says who God is and then who we are, our being, so knowing, being, and then we want to do something with it. So submitting to God's word is not simply for us to sit here and study it, but we study it and understand it in order that we might submit to it, and we submit to it when we go out and live differently. There's something God has for us in this. This is God's word. Genesis 14 is important for our sanctification. It's important for us understanding the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important for us understanding how to live when we walk out these doors. It's important for our encouragement. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read Genesis 14. Um, and I'm going to, uh, I'm, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna, and even if it's not okay with you, I'm still going to do this. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to pick up at verse 8 and read to the end, uh, because I don't think we're going to miss anything other than a lot of names that you're going to hear me mispronounce. Okay, so we're going to do that, and you're going to get it, starting in Genesis chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Omar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemimber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Okay, so what happens, just to give you some context here, uh, Kedalo Omar was the main king, and apparently these other kings are about to talk about <clears throat> king of uh, Sodom, king of Gomorrah, they were supposed to pay tribute, and they decided they, they didn't want to pay tribute anymore. So Ketelomar takes some of his allies, and he heads to the Valley of Siddim. The Valley of Siddim is at the south end of the Dead Sea. Okay, so we're talking the, the bottom end of the Dead Sea there. And then we pick this up in verse 8. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zorah, went out, and they joined the battle in the Valley of Siddim. 
with Kedil Omar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. As the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. Just to clarify that, bitumen, some of you know, if you're involved in any, any business with asphalt or anything, it's, it's, a, it's this oily substance that is found in the Middle East uh, and is found there at the, at the south end of the Dead Sea. In fact, so, many, so much so that sometimes big globs of it just end up floating on the Dead Sea. And, the, and there was, in this time, these huge bitumen pits. And it's not that the kings of Sodom and Gorah fell into the pits and died. Uh, the Hebrew, um, and as you look at the whole context, it really suggests what it means by they fell into them. They hid in them. And the reason we know that is because it says the king of Sodom uh, fell into the pit. We know he didn't die because just a few verses later we're going to find out that he's meeting with, uh, with Abram uh, for, a, for a big feast. And they, they wouldn't have had time to, to get a new king uh, by then. So he, what means they fell into, these kings went and hid in these bitumen pits while their armies were being chased. So picking up at verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. The one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with all his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedalaomar, the kings uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eskol, and Mamre take their share." Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's two things you see there on your notes, and it has to do with this battle of faith. And the first thing in verses 1 through 16 is the battle, or excuse me, enemies without. Enemies without. And in those first verses, verses 1 through 16, we see that Kedala Omar wins the battle as he goes down against these kings, and he goes into Sodom, and he takes the possession of Sodom. He takes people for his own captives, for his, for his own possession. And he takes Lot with him. And this battle that takes place 
that Abram's involved in involves enemies outside of himself. Enemies without. And brothers, in our, in our battle of faith, sometimes the enemies are outside of us. Sometimes the battle, of, the battle for our own faith, the enemies exist actually outside of us. We'll get to inside of us in a little bit. And I want us to notice a couple things as we think about this. I want us to notice, first of all, in verse 12, that Lot has gotten himself into a serious mess. And I want you to really understand the mess he's gotten into. And in order to do that, you actually have to go back to chapter 13, verse 12. You remember in chapter 13, that's when Lot and Abram, their, their, their great wealth and flocks and all that, they were having problems fighting each other. Remember, we, you, you studied that a few weeks ago before Thanksgiving. And Abram said to Lot, hey, do you want this land or do you want that land? Lot looked at the really good land where the really awesome cities were and the kind of the, the cultivated area and says, you know, I'm going to take that. And Abram's like, fine, I'll take this. And there's nothing in the, in the text that suggests uh, that, that Lot choosing to, to, to go that direction or choosing that land was a problem. Now, what was in the land was a problem. And it says in verse, thir- excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 13, look what it says. Abram settled in the land of Cana while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Or in some other translations, the Hebrew says near Sodom. So he, he put his tent up near the city of Sodom. And notice what it says about the city of Sodom. Verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So it's already a problem that, that, that Lot has moved his tents, his home, near Sodom. But look what it says in chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 12. It says, They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. He had gone from dwelling near Sodom to now dwelling in Sodom. Brothers, the, the enemies to our faith sometimes are real places and real people that we should not be near. Sometimes the battle for our faith, the enemies of our faith, and I don't mean that they don't believe what you believe. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that they would pull us away from Christ because because our own temptations and desires would be to be enamored with them. See, what I've found in my own life, I'm sure you found it in your life, none of us, once we come to know Christ... None of us would ever confess that we want to live in Sodom, right? But sometimes we'd like to live near Sodom. Working with high school students for so many years, none of them would ever say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to live, I'm going to be in among them, right? But what do we say when we were teenagers? Well, I'm just going to, just going to look. I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in the party. I'm just going to go to the party. I'm not going to do what they're doing. But I think maybe, you know, give me an opportunity to witness. I'm, I'm not going to do everything they do in that fraternity. But, you know, maybe I'll just be a light in the fraternity. And really, we're making excuses to just be near it. And then we find ourselves often, don't we? We end up in it. We end up in it. Not recognizing that sometimes the enemies to our faith are real people and real places that we should not go near. That we should not go near. And this is what happens uh, to Lot. 
Lot ends up not just near Sodom, but he ends up in Sodom. And as a result of that, he ends up being taken captive. Now, we don't want to, Scripture's not simply allegory. God hasn't given us this story uh, about this battle simply to say, oh, that's a great allegory, great illustration. Uh, that's not the primary meaning, meaning of this. But there is something to draw from that. That the captivity, you, you do go, don't we, in our temptation, when we go near places and people that are, uh, are about, uh, an enemy to our faith, we often, in our own temptation, end up in and amongst them, and then the evil one takes us captive. And we're captured by it. Now I want us to go on, I want us to see something else here, and I want us to see... What, uh, what Abram does here. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now clearly in this context, we, we understand that uh, Abram, Abram and his uh, allies, which there's, there's three of them, that they weren't attacked in this. They weren't involved in the battle. In other words, all this battle that had, taken, had happened around them, but had not affected them. So Abram's possessions were safe. Uh, his family was safe. Uh, the people he was in charge of were safe. It seems that those that he was allies with, they were safe. Everything was fine. They had not been affected. Um, they were not in any danger. Uh, and yet, his, his nephew, Lot, has been taken. And now... Abram actually risks his possession, risks his safety to go after Lot. Sometimes the enemies we face are as a result of the fact that you and I need to go after, pursue, and rescue a brother. So, so Lot, excuse me, Abram decides, you know what, I've got to go get Lot. Now he could have said, he could have said, and it seems like it would have been a, it would have made sense, common sense to say, you know what, uh, that stinks that Lot has been taken captive. But you know what, that guy, that nephew of mine, you know what, he, and, and we, would have, we would have recognized that, that Lot would have had a knowledge of and probably a relationship with God Most High, with the God Yahweh. Um, he was not, a, he was not you know, an apostate. He was not a pagan. But Abram could have said, you know what? He, he should have known better than to, than, to, than to have his tents near Sodom. He should have known better. And you know what? Then he ended up living in Sodom. And he's gotten himself into this trouble. He chose the good land just based on, just based on envy and based on a desire to increase his wealth. And then he went and lived near that wicked city, those people that, that rebelled against God, that rebelled against God. And you know what? then he went and lived among them. And you know what? He did this to himself. He did this to himself. And why should I risk my own life? Why should I risk my possessions to go after him? He's the one that did this. Why would I put myself at risk for that? Well, you put yourself at risk for that because in the family of God, we are committed to each other as brothers in Christ. And brothers, you probably experienced it. Maybe, maybe you were the one. Maybe you were the one who was, who was found in Sodom, was taken captive 
by Satan. And maybe, maybe there were some brothers that risked themselves, their reputations, um, to go after you, to pursue you and rescue you. I know some of you have done that for other brothers and even sisters in Christ and sons and daughters. Where you've recognized that the evil one has taken them captive. Captive in their sin. And you've had to go after them. And you've known the risk to go after them. You've known the risk that others around them will say, well, you shouldn't judge. Look at you. You're not a Christian. How can you say when you're, when you're trying to pursue them like it? Maybe even receiving criticism from the very person you were trying to rescue. Hey, man, get, get your business out of my marriage. You don't understand. You don't understand what you're talking about. Other people saying, gosh, they, you know, talking about you around this city, boy, they think they're holier than thou because they're going and trying. And all you're trying to do, all you're trying to do is to pursue and rescue a brother because the enemy's taking him captive. And so you become at risk from enemies without, real people, real people who question in public whether or not you really do follow God or you really know what it means to be a Christian. And it's a risk. It's a great risk. And it's easy to say. In fact, sometimes we, we fall into temptation and say, you know, I'm just going to, that's not on my business. I'm going to stay out of that. I probably can't do anything. I'm going to stay out of that. But we make a commitment, don't we? We make a commitment to each other that we're going to be family. That we're not going to leave anyone behind. And I, and I, I tell you, one of, the, one of the greatest blessings of my life of, of having been in, in, in pastoral ministry and ministry on a church staff, one of the greatest blessings of my life is that, is that my life was so exposed to so many men like you on a regular basis that when I drifted, when I, when I was finding my tent near Sodom and I was tempted to go in Sodom, there were men like you who risked what I might say about you, who risked what my friends might say about you to come after me and to talk to me and to bring me back. And it was a battle. It wasn't just a battle for my faith, which it was, which you were battling for my faith, but it was also a battle for your faith. Will I, will I trust God and go do what I need to do and pursue a brother and bring him back? That's what Abram does here. He displays that. And of course, it's not an actual battle. Um, usually it doesn't involve somebody punching you. <laughs> usually it doesn't involve swords and guns. I say usually because sometimes I've seen, <laughs> I've seen uh, Christian men pursuing a brother and, and sometimes it, some punches are thrown <laughs> in it. But usually it's not a real battle, but it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle and it's at great risk to yourself. Sometimes the enemies are without. But then look what it says, and we'll finish the rest of our time with this. In verses 17 to 24, we see the, the enemies within. And this has to do with a spiritual battle taking place inside of Abram. And the context here is important. Abram has won this incredible victory. I mean, he went out, he went out just to get Lot. That's the only reason he was going. He was just going to get Lot. He wasn't going to get anything else. And, uh, and, he, and he, 
And he does something that's pretty astounding. Not only, well, he has more than 318 men. He does have 318 men, but he also has these other allies. We don't know how many men were with him. But notice that it talks about that they, they, they had this uh, divided attack and they attacked at night. Attacking in, at nighttime was an unusual thing. Most battles didn't take place at night. They didn't have night vision goggles. They didn't have all that stuff. So it was dangerous. But they took risks in order uh, to, to win this, this, this tactical moment. So he's won this great victory. And he's being celebrated as this amazing victor. Uh, he's being championed as this amazing victor. And, and now what's happening is that there's this victory feast that's taking place in the Valley of Sheba, which is, it says, the Valley of the Kings. Apparently it was this place where, where it was special, where just the kings gathered to celebrate, to talk, to counsel together. And uh, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. And I, I, if you're like me, I'm thinking, gosh, I want that to have something to do with the communion supper. It doesn't. It just has to do <laughs> with a feast. Um, all it's saying is they brought out a great feast. And there's three kings having this great feast in honor of Abram, the great victor. And the temptation here for Abram is to take hold of that for himself. Now let's look what happens. And before we look what happens, though, we have to look at this guy Melchizedek because he's such a key figure and he hasn't been on this thing before. And we know Melchizedek is helping us unlock other parts of our Bible. We've got to understand him. So let's take a moment to do that. Who is Melchizedek? Well, first of all, in the text, we see a couple things about him. He's king of Salem, it says, and he's priest of God Most High. King of Salem. Some of you have already, have already guessed this. Salem, at that time, is the precursor to Jerusalem. And so this Salem is eventually going to be the city of Jerusalem. This is eventually going to be that great holy city where the temple is. So this Melchizedek is king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. So there's something significant about the place of which he's a king. And then it says he's, king of, uh, he's a priest of God Most High. Now there, there are scholars that uh, some would argue, even, even uh, uh, conservative scholars, evangelical scholars, who would say, well, you know, from this text, the way it's written in Hebrew, you, we, you can't say that when he says priest of God Most High, that he's talking about Yahweh, that he's talking about the God uh, of the Bible. Um, and uh, so he was probably just a monotheistic priest who, who was uh, proclaiming about his God. Except the problem there is that in Psalm 110, which we'll look at in a second, and Hebrews 7, uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews and David in Psalms seems to write, looking back on Melchizedek, speaks about him in a completely different way. As someone who, uh, who, who is a type of Christ, as we'll see. So, you know, which one is it? Is it, 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 was it he truly someone, when he says the priest of God most high, is it talking about, um, is it talking about uh, the God of the Bible? Or is it just, you know, he's just naming a, a God? Um, so as I was reading through that and wrestling through that and thinking what my own thoughts were about all this, and all, I decided to consult um, our, the, the exquisite Old Testament scholar here on staff, Dr. Mary Wilson. I sat down with her yesterday afternoon and I said, okay, hey, let's look at this text. And she is, she is brilliant at Hebrew. And I said, hey, talk to me about this. And 
Thankfully, she agrees with what I thought, so I feel a lot better about that now. Uh, she said, Todd, I, I don't think there's any way, really, honestly, to not see the Melchizedek as worshiping Yahweh because of the other texts that, that speak into it. There's, she said, it just wouldn't make sense. Uh, and, and the Hebrew doesn't prohibit that from happening, that he's actually saying God Most High. And as we talked about, that you look at Psalm 78, and you'll see that very same term, that very same Hebrew term, used over and over again in Psalm 78 for Yahweh, for God. So Melchizedek is a priest of God. And Salem, there in Jerusalem, and God, those things connected. So he is a priest who represents the God that Abram worships. Now, knowing that, we need to go to Hebrews 7. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the supremacy of Christ. And the supremacy of Christ, even over the Old Testament priesthood and all that. And in Hebrews 7, he picks up on this Melchizedek. And look at what it says in Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abram, Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned, to, excuse me, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, that's Melchizedek, is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. His name means king of righteousness. And then it says, and then he's also king of Salem, which is king of peace, Shalom. So Melchizedek, his name and his title are king of righteousness and king of peace. And then notice what it says in verse 3. He is without father or mother. Remember I said that's highly unusual for Genesis. Or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Right there, the writer of Hebrews saying he is a type of Christ. Now there's several types of Christ, and they are real people that give us some facet, help us under some, some facet of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. So he, there couldn't be any one person that could show us the totality of Jesus. But Melchizedek, David, King David, he is a type. All of these become for us a type of Christ that helps us understand who Jesus Christ is. So Melchizedek is given to us in Genesis 14 to help us understand Jesus. And at that time, it would have been normal to be, if you were king of your city, you were also the priest. You were also the main priest. That was just a given. But we know in the history of the Israelites that God took and he separated those two offices. He said it's important that those offices be separated. That there is a king and there's a priest and they cannot be the same. You, that, is not, that is not good, God says. And the only time that ever happens again, where those offices are put together, is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not just king and priest, but also prophet. And those offices all come together in him. And so Melchizedek is this type, king of righteousness, king of peace. He is both king and priest in this moment. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. But where is he getting this? Turn in your Bibles 
to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a very short psalm. It's only seven verses long. It is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament by the New Testament. The New Testament writers quote Psalm 110 more than any other chapter in the Bible. That right there should tell us it's really important. There's a, a, a great sermon by Dr. Don Carson, D.A. Carson, that he preached uh, years ago at the Gospel Coalition Conference when it was at McCormick Place in Chicago. I think it was 2007, 2008 uh, there. And uh, his he was the last plenary speaker, and he was going to speak on Melchizedek, and his title was Getting Excited About Melchizedek. And some of you have heard me tell this story that because of Sandy being on the Gospel Coalition Council, uh, myself, Mitchell Moore, and Mary got to be in the VIP section front row. So there's 8,000 people behind us, and we're right there at the stage. It was a great moment for me for a lot of reasons. One, I, I, uh, I got to you know, tell Matt Chandler, oh, I'm sorry, you can't sit here. I'm saving this for Mary Wilson, you know, things like that. But I was right there when, when, when they were going to preach, and, and Tim, Don Carson's sitting here, I'm sitting there. Tim Keller gets up in front of these 8,000 people, and he's going to introduce uh, Dr. Carson uh, before he speaks on getting excited about Melchizedek. And what I got to hear that nobody else heard um, is that after he tells, uh, Tim Keller tells everybody about his great friend and this great scholar and how dear a brother he is to him, and, you know, and Keller's up there in like, jeans and you know he's from you know Manhattan so he's you know he's got jeans on and he almost he almost looks hip for a for a you know a, a late 60 year old um Don Carson's in like full suit tie every, you know he's uh totally old school and as the two of them pass on the stairs after the introduction as Dr. Carson's going up to give his speech <laughs> uh, Tim Keller looked at Don and was like excite me Don <laughs> and Don looked at him and was like and just walked on up the stairs. Incredible sermon in there. But it's interesting to note in that, in that sermon, Don Carson makes an amazing observation. And I'll never forget it. In fact, Mary and I were talking about yesterday afternoon. You have here Psalm 110 written by David. When David writes this, he is king. And he's sitting in Jerusalem. And he writes this about Melchizedek. And, and Don Carson says, I, I have every reason to believe that what is taking place probably is that King David, king of Jerusalem, is sitting there having his personal devotion in Genesis 14. And he's meditating on Genesis 14. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, as he meditates on God's word, again, the Holy Spirit working in him, he writes this psalm speaking about Melchizedek and understanding that Melchizedek is a type of one who is to come because at that time, remember, David knew you didn't put together the king and the priest. They were two separate offices. But as he meditated in that moment, he understood, no, God is going to bring someone who is to come, who is going to be both priest and king. Forever. And so as he writes this psalm, look at what it says here. The Lord says to my Lord, literally in the Hebrew, it says Yahweh says to Adonai. In other words, God the Father says to the Lord Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That has to do with the gospel because the ruling that comes with the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a, sub, a subduing of our hearts. He conquers our hearts. So that is the gospel message. Verse 3, your people, that's us, those who have, been, who have been ruled now by the king, by King Jesus, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Why do we do that? Because God regenerates our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ has done that for us. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. We don't have enough time to explain that, but it's fascinating. And then look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a king priest. Now, go back to Genesis 14. And let me just show you in five minutes what happens with Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this amazing figure who is a type of Christ, comes out. He is a worshiper of God. He is a priest of God Most High. And he comes out and he, he lays a blessing on Abram because Abram is a victor. But notice that the blessing that Melchizedek gives is not a blessing uh, about Abram. It's a blessing on Abram about God. It's fascinating. What he says there emphasizes who God is, that God is most high and that he's possessor, or actually in the Hebrew, in, in the NIV translations, it's translated creator, and it's both, creator, possessor, maker. He is the one who creates and owns and sustains heaven and earth. That's who God is. And then proclaims what God has done. It says in verse 20, who has delivered your enemies into your hands? In other words, he proclaims to Abram, you didn't win this battle, God won this battle for you. But then look at what the king of Sodom does. And remember, this is just a feast with these three guys. There's just three there. It's Abram, Melchizedek, the king of Sodom. What does king of Sodom do? King of Sodom says, turns to him and says, hey, listen, uh, you know, give me the people that belong in my city, but you can take all the possessions. You can take all of them. At this point, between these two kings and these two, two, two conversations, Abram has a wrestling of faith. There's a battle of faith inside. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he knows the promise that God gave him, that God would make him a great nation, that he would give him a great name. And boy, this seems like it could be a shortcut to that. It seems like, hey, you know what? Maybe I should go ahead and take credit for this. Maybe I should go ahead and take this stuff because that'll help. I could help God fulfill his promise to me here. I could help him along the way. And so in that moment, there's got to be this tension in Abram, this battle within. The enemy within now is his own desires, his own temptation to shortcut the promises of God because it seems like, hey, I can make a great name for myself right now. Hey, I can make myself... I can, I can get more land. I can get more possessions right now. I could shortcut this whole thing. I could help God out right now. And we struggle with that. But what does Abram do in this text? Three things. First of all, we notice that Abram submits to God in worship. Verse 20. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. That is a, a, an act recognizing that that uh, the proclamation and who Melchizedek is represents Yahweh. He worships Yahweh by giving Melchizedek, this, this priest, this great priest of God, 
a tenth of everything. It's, a, it's an offering. And it's an act of worship. Now, certainly there was some honor to it, but this is a priest, remember. This isn't just a pagan priest. He, Abram wasn't afraid of him. There was an act of worship that took place here. Boy, there's a whole other sermon that all of my elders and my pastor, senior pastor would love me for me to teach you right now, but we won't do that on that. Second thing I want us to see Abram doing, he gives glory to God in proclamation. So again, there's battle going on within. What, is, what does he do with this battle? He first of all worships God. He second of all gives, he proclaims, he speaks out who God is. Because look what it says in verse 22. I have lifted my hand to the Lord. That's in Hebrew, that's Yahweh. See, it's all capitals in your Bible. The Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He adds the Yahweh to what Melchizedek says. And he proclaims, hey, that's who the victor is. I'm going to say out loud, I'm going to give testimony that this was God and not me. I'm not going to make my name great. I'm going to make God's name great in this moment. And the third thing he does, we see in verses 23 and 24, he entrusts himself to God's work and God's timing. He doesn't shortcut it. He says, I'm not going to take your stuff. I, I give the people that need to be paid fairly, pay them fairly, but I'm not, I'm not going to make a name for myself. I'm going to make a name for God, and I'm not going to shortcut God's promise to me in, in Genesis 12, verse 2. I'm not going to help God out. I'm going to trust that God will do it in his timing and his way. And I sense that this is not his timing and this is not his way. This would be a shortcut. And we know that God affirms this because in the very first verse of chapter 15, God says to him, I will be your shield. I will, I will be, Abram, you're blessed because I am your shield. I am the one that will provide for you. I am the one that will protect you. I am the one that will fulfill that promise. And in Genesis 15, we're going to see this in amazing ways. Before we leave here this morning, let's think about this. We know that Abram wasn't always faithful. He's faithful in this moment. He wins this battle of faith in this moment. But we already know from chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, that Abram doesn't always win that battle of faith, right? Because the whole thing with his wife and the, and, the, and, and the Pharaoh in Egypt. And you're gonna see something amazing, I mean absolutely amazing in Genesis 15. And then you're gonna see in Genesis 16 that Abram doesn't win the battle of faith. Abraham, Abraham, as great as he is, and, and though he's won the battle of faith here, though he's been faithful here, we know that Abraham has not always been faithful and will not always be faithful. But one thing we know is we read from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation 21 that God is always faithful. That's clear. In fact, those two things together are very clear. So brothers, as we go out from this place, we know we don't always win the battle. We don't always win the day. You might win the battle today and you might fail tomorrow. We're not always faithful. But we know that God is always faithful. We know, as we read in other places, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion even knowing that you and I struggle in the battle of faith.
That is our security. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, he is our shield. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to be under your word. Um, Lord, and we, we want to be not only those who know your word, but we want to respond by understanding who we are as a result of that and who you are to understand our being. And Father, we want to we do what you've taught us. So Lord, as we meditate on these things in Genesis 14, we'd ask that you would move us into being your men. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for this wrestle with the scriptures. Thank you, Father, for feeding us this morning. We make our prayer in Jesus' name and all God's men said, Amen. Amen.